Hello again, Gary Zacharias with the Apologist Bookshelf. I've got an interesting book here called Reinventing Jesus, subtitled How Contemporary Skeptics Miss the Real Jesus and Mislead Popular Culture by Ed Kamashevsky, uh, James Sawyer, and Daniel Wallace. Now, these three are, are powerful names. Dan Wallace is a great textual critic. I, I love the work that he does. Just listen to some of his work sometime. He's done debates and uh, has some excellent lectures out there. So this book is trying to deal with this radical skepticism that's going on today. You know, who was really, what do we know about Jesus? Who was he really? And how reliable is the New Testament? And so this book, the job of this book is to cut through the rhetoric of this tremendous doubt that people have to show that there's a credibility to historic Christianity. And you can tell there's a lot of research that went into this, and yet you can read it easily. It's not that hard to read at all. And uh, they, they say on the back cover here, it shows believers that it's okay to think hard about Christianity and shows hard thinkers that it's okay to believe. I like that. That's a good way to put it. So a lot of things that they cover in here, I'm just going to have to, for now, at least just focus on one or two small things. Um, things like, uh, did the ancient New Testament text get politically corrupted? Uh, did the early church change the canon, the accepted books? How did they come up with these books? Now, the divinity of Jesus, was that an early tradition or was that added later by the church? Uh, did Christianity rip off mythical gods? Maybe you've heard that one before. So I'm, I want to keep coming back to this book. It's got so many good things. I'm going to take the first section of the book, though, just the first part. It's called I Believe in Yesterday. You can hum that song if you're old enough to remember that, uh, Beatles. But they start off with a question, how do we know the gospel writers got it right? Why was the writing of the Gospels delayed for decades? What happened in the meantime? Isn't it likely that the Gospel writers forgot a lot of the details, and by the time they sat down to write it, they were going, hmm, I don't remember exactly. Maybe it was something like this. So as they start off, I like what they do. They define their terms. They talk about the synoptic Gospels. Those are the ones that take a similar point of view, and that would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they said that John <clears throat> is so different that it's been estimated that 90% of the material in John is unique to that gospel. And they give you a, you know, kind of a background of where do they get their source material and all, and I'm going to skip over that if that's okay. But they said, here's the key thing. We're going to talk about what was going on with Jesus and his life, the words and deeds, before they were written down in the gospels. In other words, that's oral tradition time. And, and people start scratching their heads going, yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? Jesus talking and people just listening, going off and later going, what did he say? So the first section is, why the wait? In other words, you have written gospels, but they come decades after Jesus lived. And they said, uh, the Jesus seminar, the people that are highly skeptical, they said, the Jesus of the gospels is an imaginative theological construct. Oh, Really? Well, that could be if there's a problem from the time of Jesus until, until people started writing it down, maybe people's memories started fading. And so their question is, what happened in that interview, interval between the life of Jesus and the written Gospels? In fact, they said maybe we should be asking, why were the Gospels written at all? What, what was going on? Because first, when the apostles went out after Jesus went back to heaven, it was an oral proclamation. They wanted to get the word out as soon as possible. So they started in Jerusalem, you know what it said in Acts, and then it was Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. They, they started moving out all over the place. 
Well, eventually, though, they actually started writing this out, writing out the stories of Jesus. Why? Well, first, the apostles started to die off. So what are you going to do? I mean, these are firsthand accounts. We better get them down. And second, the Lord's return wasn't happening as soon as they were expecting. And so the church is seeing that Jesus is not coming back. Maybe we better get this down so that people will know what really happened. And it says, in reality, each one of the Gospels has its own reasons for being written when it was written and to whom. But the point is that the oral proclamation was of primary concern in the first few decades. So what kind of delay are we talking about? We have the oral transmission, then we get the written account. What's the difference? How many years went by? They said most scholars will say Mark was the first gospel written no later than the 60s. Okay, so if Jesus died in the 30s, we're talking within four decades of the death of Jesus, we're getting one of the gospels. They said, you know, even if it's written that late, and they're going to argue actually for an earlier uh, date for Mark, but even if it's written that late, there would have been plenty of eyewitnesses still around. That's a good point. But, and this is the part I think is fascinating, I guess because I like history, but they said there's evidence to suggest that Mark actually wrote earlier than in the 60s. Why? They said, well, let's just highlight a few points. Most people think Luke used Mark to write his gospel, which means that Mark would have been earlier than Luke's gospel. Yeah, okay, got that? Pretty simple. Secondly, Luke is really the first volume of a two-volume work. And what's the second one? Acts. They said there's increasing evidence now that Acts was written in the early 60s. Why? Well, you've got Paul still alive. You've got Peter still alive when the book of Acts ends. And the book starts off with a lot of interesting things going on, but they said it kind of ends on a whimper. It, it drags on chapter after chapter. You're waiting for the trial for Paul in Rome, and it's not there. So that makes sense if Luke ended the book before Paul was put on trial and put to death, which is in the mid-60s. Also, they say if you look at the Olivet Discourse, in which Jesus predicts the destruction of the Jerusalem, it's in Mark 13, and it said there are specifics there that don't really match what happened in the Jewish war. So they said if Jesus is this great prognosticator, but it's not exactly fulfilled, they would have left it out which I thought was an interesting way of putting it. So they said, what does this all mean for Matthew and Luke that they were most likely written before 70 AD, Matthew and Luke? And the reason is that Luke is the first volume of Luke-Acts, and Acts is written in the 60s. So now you're starting to push Mark back much earlier than that. And uh, it says the argument of the Gospels have to be written after 70 because of the predictive quality. It says the prophecy wasn't completely fulfilled. So you didn't have to wait till 70 AD to have that written down. Okay, so what's going on in the meantime? So he said the stories of Jesus would have been circulating. The, the sayings that he had would have been repeated maybe thousands of times by all these eyewitnesses before they ever wrote anything down. Okay, that makes sense. If the earliest proclamation about Jesus got altered, we still have people alive. That first generation Christians would know about the changes and would object to them. And they couldn't control the gospel message. It was shooting out all across the empire, and there's no control over the content. So once the gospel spread beyond Jerusalem, the apostles couldn't change it. They couldn't alter it. So if there's any kind of conspiracy, it would have had to have been before the day of Pentecost, because after that, the explosion in the movement outward from Jerusalem would have 
precluded anybody from coming up with an alternate uh, list of things that Jesus said and did. Okay, so they said we've got two alternatives. Either the gospel message changed dramatically over several years, or it remained stable over several years until it was written down. And they said it's improbable that the gospel message changed dramatically over several years because it's all over the place. You'd have to go from city to city to change that. So I thought that was an interesting thing to talk, to talk about. In chapter 2, which is still dealing with this oral tradition, this one talks about oral tradition and a memorizing culture. So here's the problem. How accurate were the disciples when they're going around saying what Jesus did and said? Some argue the disciples just forgot. Or maybe their faith kind of overpowered their memories. And uh, keep in mind, the recollections are not individual memories. They're collective ones that were confirmed by other eyewitnesses. And these stories kept getting told and retold. You're not going to forget things like that. So they're saying that memory in community is a death blow that they would have forgotten about what Jesus was. Uh, now, we don't really know how deeply entrenched the culture of memory was in that ancient Jewish world. Uh, keep in mind, as they point out here, that Jesus was regarded as rabbi and the followers were disciples. Okay, well, what happened in that kind of relationship? The, the rabbi's words had to be memorized. That was natural. That's what you do. If you're a, a disciple of a rabbi, you memorize what the rabbi had to say. Now, here's the catch, though, that they bring up. If you have those quotations, those direct quotations, you say it's exactly what Jesus said, but the written Gospels have slightly different ways of putting it. And the, the, the response to that is, ancient historians weren't concerned with quoting the exact words of a person. They were just trying to get the gist of what the person had to say. And that's probably what's going on with the gospel writers. They don't always record the words of Jesus in exactly the same way. So that may be a, a good point there. Now they're arguing that the apostles and other eyewitness would have told the story of Jesus repeatedly before they wrote down the gospels. And they had this repetition by multiple witnesses would have kept what they call quality control over this. So we look today and we say, how could they have remembered any of that stuff? And we kind of put down memory. I can't even remember anything. I have to put my cell phone number on the back of my cell phone. Uh, that's sad, but anyway, <laughs> that's what I have to do. But we have the printed page, so we don't need to worry about memorization. But people in ancient cultures could memorize gigantic chunks of information. I read somewhere that there are Muslim scholars who have memorized the Quran, and that's roughly the size of the New Testament. And there were people that memorized books of the Old Testament. So memorization, we don't see it as possible. And they certainly did back in those days. Uh, one scholar said if the role of oral tradition was important to the ancients in general, it was especially important to Jewish culture. And then when Jesus taught, he taught in such a way that helped people remember what he had to say. It was rhythmic. Uh, some kind of memorable fashion that said something like 80% of Jesus' teaching <clears throat> is cast in some kind of poetic form. And they said, in addition, there's no reason why some of the disciples wouldn't have taken notes. We don't have proof that they did, but there were many cases in that time period people did take notes. So, in the end of this chapter, they're saying that ancient Jewish culture, the relation of the disciples to Jesus as a rabbi and the multiple witnesses, and these repetitions of the stories all point to a strong oral tradition behind the written Gospels, right? It's a strong oral tradition. 
It's not like the telephone game where one person talks to another person quietly, that person talks to a third person, whispers, and it comes around full circle and it's totally distorted. This is very, very different than that. All right, one more chapter. It's a short chapter. These are the first three chapters I'm going over here. Question, how do critical scholars go about determining whether Jesus really said something in the Gospels? Is that authentic or not? So one way is they, they have what they call a criteria of authenticity. In other words, how, do you, how would you judge it to being authentic? Well, one way is what they call criterion of dissimilarity. If Jesus said something that was different from the teachings of the Judaism of his day, so that would be one thing. He said things that were unique, many things that he said were, were unique. Here's a second thing that you can look for. Um, let's see, like son of man. Jesus uh, used that phrase, son of man. It said it was almost never found in ancient Judaism or even early Christian literature. So that was probably an authentic thing here. Here's a second criterion that you would say, can we, do we think this is really what Jesus said? It's called the criterion of multiple attestation. So in other words, is it in different books of the New Testament, the, the sources? And yeah, we, we hear him saying those kinds of things more than one time. Third, criterion of coherence. So does Jesus cohere with the rest of the picture of what we have about Jesus, either his kindness or his wisdom or something like that? And then finally, the fourth criterion is that of embarrassment. So did Jesus say anything? Did the disciples say something that would be kind of embarrassing? The only reason you'd put it in is because that's, that's what happened. That's what people said. And so, uh, for example, take the apostles. Jesus is rebuking them, saying you have lack of faith. You don't seem to understand. They're, they end up wrangling for positions of leadership. That all suggests authenticity. And uh, so you're saying, okay, uh, what about Jesus who says, I don't know uh, when uh, I'm coming back, right, except the Father. So you go, oh, okay, so that makes Jesus look slightly less powerful, doesn't it? Another uh, illustration of the criterion of embarrassment would be the witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Women were the first ones to the tomb. Why is that a big deal? Because women in Jewish society were not considered credible witnesses. That was amazing. So uh, some other considerations. Paul, uh, why else should we think that Jesus said the things that are in the New Testament? Well, in Galatians 2, Paul is concerned about, is he preaching the right message? So he'd been preaching it for 14 years. So he came to Jerusalem to verify that that's what the apostles were saying. Those that knew Jesus had seen him in the flesh. And so he met with them. And there's a letter that the gospel of Paul had been preaching was the same gospel that the rest of the apostles preached. There's, there's no hint of collusion, no sense that the gospels got changed. And so the reasons for Jesus' death and his resurrec re resurrection and the title of Messiah and all these performing miracles, that's all part of that confirmation. So conclusion, the period between Jesus and the writing of the gospels was not dormant. The gospel was spread, and the stories were being told, and the teachings were repeated thousands of times, and uh, the point is the Jewish culture was a memorizing culture. There was eyewitness testimony. There was confirmation of memory in community. In other words, a lot of other people, not just individuals. So they said that argues strongly that the oral tradition behind the written gospels, remember the written gospels are 30 or 40 years after Jesus, but that oral tradition was stable, 
It was reliable. It was a good source of information. So here's the summary at the end of the chapter. What we have today, now this is a quote from a James D.G. Dunn, D-U-N-N. What we today are confronted with in the Gospels is not the top layer or a later edition of a series of increasingly impenetrable layers, but the living tradition of Christian celebration which takes us with surprising immediacy to the heart of the first memories of Jesus. So things were not changed, people did not forget, people did not make up stuff. So what we got in the Gospels was that message that came from the time of Jesus himself. So I think that's uh, powerful. Uh, one thing along with that is, of course, some of the creeds that Paul puts in his letters. 1 Corinthians 15 has a creed that he says, I'm passing along to you. It's the same story of Jesus that we get in the Gospels, but it's much earlier. Paul wrote uh, this 1 Corinthians passage around 55 AD, and he's quoting a creed that many people think came within a year of the actual death and resurrection of Jesus. So Paul's not coming up with a new Jesus. He's going back again and again, and he's he's talked to the people, and he's handled these creeds, and he's including them in many of his um, letters. And we can do a talk on that sometime, because I think that's fascinating, these creeds that we get from Paul. Okay, well, I hope that was helpful to you. Again, the book is called Reinventing Jesus, and good authors, and a powerful book. Thanks. Let's do this again soon.